The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at God's Word and this subject of joy, Psalm 32, follow along with me as we hear God's Holy Word read. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. And surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding and must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding. Open your word to us. We long to know you better. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This week, Patty and I go on our annual trip to Texas to to see her side of the family. Many of you know about that. And Patty always notices that I get very happy as the day of departure gets nearer. She says sometimes that she thinks I get happier than she gets going to see her family, and she doesn't think that's right somehow. Yes, it's true. I like going on vacation. That's a form of happiness or joy, of course. But it's a form that's dependent on the circumstances of this fleeting life, isn't it? Actually, I have less happiness in anticipation of this year's trip because my father, who lives not far from here, has been hospitalized for the past month. And so our family is uh, having a hard time with what he's going through and sharing that with him. So we weren't even sure if we were going to get to go this year. But we'll probably go because he seems to be doing okay. My point, though, is tonight we want to consider the subject of Christian joy. We want to look at Psalm 32 from the perspective of the joy the Christian has in God. Joy we see in the psalm for forgiven sins. Joy in God's unfailing love. Actually, Psalm 32 is one of the seven what have been called penitential psalms. Psalms that express repentance over sin. And yet, we find that it is a psalm of joy 
And it concludes with that climactic command, rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous sing all you who are upright in heart. A call and a command to rejoice in God. This was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. He had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed before he died in order to meditate, it on, to meditate on it better because it was on his wall. And also we find that the first two verses of this psalm are verses quoted in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, to underline the whole matter of justification by grace through faith and what that means in terms of forgiveness of sins. In Psalm 45, we find Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anticipated Messiah, the anointed one, as being described as being anointed with the oil of joy. And certainly, Christians desire to be like Jesus Christ, to be conformed to Christ more and more. And part of that likeness will consist of this same spirit of joy in God, being anointed with the oil of joy. And so, Christian joy, to rejoice in the Lord, is both a privilege and a gift of the Spirit, we might say, and it's also a duty the Christian is called to. Both of those are true. It's something produced in us by the Spirit's working, and so it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's also something to which we are commanded. The last verse of this psalm, Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Be joyful always. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So it's not about what we eat or don't eat or drink or don't drink. But Paul says, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is all about those three things. Righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, peace, peace with God, joy in the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards comments on 1 Peter 1.8 that true Christianity has two kinds of operations in the soul. He says the operation of love to Christ and that of joy in Christ. And he quotes 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. So there's that aspect of love for Christ. We love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. There's the joy in Christ. So joy is not something optional in the Christian life. It's not like icing on the cake and your Christian life is fine without it. No, we should be seeking to grow in our joy in the Lord. And clearly, joy in the Lord is to be something that's unrelated to our circumstances. We can't wait for all the circumstances of our lives to line up right, and then we'll have joy. Of course, we would we would think that we might like a life like that, where everything always works well, where we never get a flat tire, where everything always goes right, and we drive down the road, and as we go, all the lights turn from red to green just as we arrive, and we zoom right through. Wouldn't that be great? No, we can't wait for our circumstances. We have to learn to rejoice in the Lord always, to be happy in our God. In fact, it's not even enough to trust the Lord and obey the Lord and to worship the Lord, but we should 
worship with joy. We should obey with joy. We should trust with joy. And we know that in this life, we'll always be on the way in that regard. We'll always be hopefully progressing, but we'll never arrive in terms of always living with this height of joy in Christ. Well, Psalm 32 begins far from this spirit of joy, doesn't it? It talks about the blessedness of sins forgiven, and then it kind of backs up, and we see David when he wasn't experiencing joy. And it reminds us that many times we are not where we ought to be when it comes to joy in God. Joy, in one sense, is an emotion, and you simply can't command your emotions. Our emotions uh, change, and they change as our hearts and our minds are focused on different things. So the scriptural order of things is that our minds are enlightened, and that moves our affections or our emotions, and then the will acts as a result of that. But we can't just snap our fingers and change the way we feel. So I'd like to look at this psalm from the perspective of what we might call stumbling blocks and stepping stones to joy, things that stand in the way of our joy, and then how we can use or look at that as a stepping stone to joy. And hopefully this will help us to cultivate this fruit of joy in God. So I want us to look at three of these, each with a a stumbling block and a stepping stone, so to speak. So the first point, this stumbling block that we begin with is that of sin in our lives. We see this in the first part of the psalm, as I said. Sin breaks our communion with our God. It affects our fellowship with our God. And Christian joy, at its heart, is the enjoyment of God. So, certainly our joy is going to be affected if sin is getting in the way of enjoying God of fellowshipping with God, of enjoying communion with God. And every Christian knows this in his or her daily life. Sin regularly gets in the way of our fellowship with God. It regularly, we might say, it attacks our joy. Our sin, both our acts of sin, our words of sin, our attitudes and desires of sin, all of these affect our joy. Now, we see that Psalm 32 begins with this, this idea of blessed. It hasn't been in the psalm since Psalm 1. You could read through the psalms, and Psalm 1 begins with this, blessed is the man. And here we find it again, or happy is the man, we might even say. And Psalm 32 is probably a psalm that Dave wrote after Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we know for sure, was penned after David's sin of adultery and his sin of of having Uriah uh, killed. And then he immediately, probably shortly after that, penned Psalm 51. Most scholars think that Psalm 32 is a further reflection on his sin and God's work in his life. Psalm 32 describes the blessedness of transgressions forgiven, sins covered, and whose sin the Lord does not count against him. It's interesting that here are three ways that sin is described and three similar ways that sin is talked about being forgiven. It's kind of like the psalmist piles on phrase after phrase to talk about the blessedness of sin forgiven and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
probably that refers to something about a true heart of repentance as we deal with our sin. And then David launches into this description of what it was like when he was not confessing his sin. Notice in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This was a pretty hot day. If you would have been out there walking on a long walk, your strength would have been sapped. If we take our dog on a walk on a day like this, we can get about two houses down the road and, you know, she's ready to turn around. Her strength really gets sapped fast on a hot day. And David's saying, think of yourself outside on a hot summer day and you're just wilting. That's what your life is like spiritually when you cover your sin, when you refuse to deal with your sin, when you don't confess your sin to the Lord and turn from it and know his grace in forgiving you of your sin. And so we must ask ourselves, is there something I'm holding on to that I need to confess, that I need to forsake? Uh, like that little booklet that was out years ago, My Heart, Christ's Home, that in a sense was going through the various rooms of your house. If, you're, if your life was like a home, Christ is wanting to open up every door and pour in his grace and forgiveness and the power of his spirit and cleanse every room of the sin that dwells there. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I holding on to some sinful attitude, some resentment, some envy, some critical and unforgiving spirit, some area of pride or love of the world? David is saying here in verses 3 and 4 that he had no joy when he was hiding his sin. And it it connects with Psalm 51, verse 12, where he says after confessing and likewise describing him, turning from his sin, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Part of the reason that Jesus Christ was so completely filled with joy is because Jesus had no sin. There was no break in the fellowship with him and the Father, of course, until he bore our sins on the cross. And so the first stumbling block here is unconfessed sin. That saps our joy in God. And so the corresponding stepping stone, we might say, is obviously confess and forsake your sin and go to the Lord with it. Confess it to the Lord. Here we see in verse 5 what David describes in terms of the need to confess and turn. He says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, God, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's the gospel. There's not a waiting period there. There's not crawling on broken glass for a long period of time. The gospel is that we come to God empty, broken, sinful, and through Jesus Christ, God forgives us. There's nothing complex about it. Because of what Jesus Christ did, God forgives us. David says, I finally came for a time that I was hiding my sin. I was covering it up, but he finally comes, and he confesses, and there's this forgiveness of guilt, and there's this further progression in the psalm. In verse 5, freedom from guilt, we've just seen. Then in verses 6 and 7, there's expectation and faith in God's deliverance. 
And then there's this testimony in verses 8 through 10 that climaxes in verse 10 about God's unfailing love. And then the final verse, rejoice in the Lord. So you go in this psalm from really David hiding his sin in verses 3 and 4 all the way to David calling the righteous to rejoice in God. So there is a way out of this stumbling block of unconfessed sin, and that is to confess it. And so we know that Christians do sin. Our goal is not to sin. We heard this morning Tucker preached about the call of sanctification and the fact that the goal is to be progressing and overcoming sin. But we know, and 1 John describes, that anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar. No Christian can claim to be without sin. And the Apostle John calls us to turn away from sin, and yet he says, if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so we rejoice that we are called to immediately confess our sin. And one of the habits of Christian life and experience should be regular self-examination. You know, we live in a society that never examines anything in terms of the inner man, the inner heart. We should be pausing, maybe at the end of the day, maybe when you have your prayer time with God and your Bible reading time, to to confess your sin, to say, Lord, show me, search me, and help me to confess my sin. Every parent knows what it's like for a young child who's been, you know, who's done something wrong, and a young child just can't hide that. A young child just, it is not good at deceit. Isn't that a good thing? But we grow better at that, don't we, as we grow up? And so every parent knows that guilty look that a young child has. And when that's the case, the normal parent-child relationship's broken. There's not that fellowship. The child knows something is wrong. And so we're to turn away from stubborn unrepentance. In fact, later on in the psalm, if you look down to verse 9, where David is really essentially telling us God's reply to him at this point about instructing him, and we'll see more about that, there's this command from God Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. In other words, don't resist. David is saying, I was like the horse and mule when I was covering my sin. Don't be stubbornly resisting the work of the Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. But be uh, soft-hearted to God. Don't be like the horse and the mule. Receive God's instruction. What a blessing to experience forgiveness. And if you've never experienced it, I hope you know that there is free forgiveness simply coming to God through Jesus Christ, turning your life over to Him and saying, Lord, forgive me of my sins on the basis of what Christ has done. And then every Christian knows that that's how we come to God every day. We As we have received Jesus Christ as Lord, Colossians says, so walk in Him. We walk standing in the gospel and in the grace of God. So the first stumbling block is sin. The second stumbling block we might call looking for security in the wrong places. Looking for security in the wrong places. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, this is the conclusion to David's description of what 
happened to him. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. What's David saying here? Well, the primary sense of verse 6 may be speaking again, reflecting on his sin and his forgiveness. And the mighty waters rising may be a reference to God's judgment, God's final judgment on sin. And he's speaking about that in terms of waters. And he says, they will not reach me. In other words, David's sins are forgiven. He has cleansed. And then he goes on to talk about God being his hiding place. But it's very likely that even if there is a sense that this means judgment, there's also a further sense that David is speaking about the troubles of this life. In fact, verse 7 uses that word, you are my hiding place, you will protect me from trouble. That probably is a reference to the afflictions, the trials, the hardships of this life. And what's he saying here? He's saying, I have learned more deeply that my only security is in my God. It's easy to find our security in many other things. In fact, if you look at a place like Philippians chapter 3, where, again, there's this call to rejoice, and, and the apostle says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Right away after that in chapter 3, he calls them and he warns them away from trusting in the flesh. In Paul's day, there, were, there was this emphasis in this Judaistic legalism that Christians were being drawn back into kind of a legalistic relationship with God based on ceremonial things. And so, Paul is warning, and I think David is calling us here, that our confidence, our security must be firmly fixed in nothing but God alone. You think about the kind of things that uh, we find our security in. Maybe it is something like Philippians 3 that we find security in a legalistic view of our walk with God. So if we're doing pretty well in our walk with God and we're having our quiet time or our prayer time and we're being pretty obedient, at least in outward ways, then we feel secure somehow. And yet Scripture says our security does not rest in our performance, in ourselves. Maybe your security even rests somehow in ministry success. It's even easy for pastors to somehow find security in, in success to some degree that they might have, be having in their ministry. And so it's interesting that in Luke chapter 10, when the 72 disciples returned to Jesus from their missionary work, and Luke records that they, that they come back rejoicing, and they say, even the demons were subject to us, Lord, and they were rejoicing in that. It's interesting that Jesus gently corrects them and says, don't rejoice that the demons were subject to, but, to you, but rather rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. Now, that's not down, downplaying the fact that we can have joy in lesser things, but ultimately, our joy has to be in God. Our joy has to be that our names are written in heaven. That's where our security is to be. Now, I think the most powerful security of 20th, 21st century America is materialism. We tend to find our security 
in how we can control our lives materialistically with our savings and with uh, making sure that we're in control of things and having a good job and all of that, which a lot of that is fine. But there is no way to prevent the mighty waters rising and overthrowing, breaching the dikes, we might say, of all the securities, the things that we find security in in this world. The recent stock market collapse is an example of that. I remember in April of 2000, when the stock market fell then, I remember reading that Bill Gates lost $30 billion. But of course, that didn't really affect him because he had so much more, right? But I remember listening to an NPR news story about a worker, an employee in one of the dot-com companies out west. They were interviewing this employee who had invested in company stock over the years, and he had worked up to have about $20 million in dot-com stock. And just listening to this story made me so sad for him because he lost it all when the market fell. And he could have retired completely, but, you know, he, he wanted more. He was talking about if I, he thought the market was just going to go up more. His security was just dashed, wasn't it, when he lost it all. Maybe your security is in your health. Maybe it's in your children's well-being or in your marriage, or in your future career, or maybe it's in the nation's existence. And some, some of us are thinking, well, uh, what is our nation going to face in years to come? We can't ultimately find our true security in that. So the stumbling block here is looking for security in anything other than God. That will rob us of our joy in Christ. And so the corresponding stepping stone would be to trust in the Lord, whatever the trials might be, to trust in the Lord in trials. That's why David, in a sense, instructs others in verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Certainly to pray prayers of confession of sin, that's probably in view here, but I think it's a wider thing that it's also praying in terms of trusting the Lord with your life, with your ultimate security. So when the, what, the, the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. And then that beautiful description in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. This image of just being surrounded by God's people singing praise and with songs of praise to God, even when the mighty waters rise. Now remember, joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces joy in our lives. Romans 15:13 says, "May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him." So there's the connection. That's a clear verse that describes joy overflowing in our lives as we trust in the Lord. The verse goes on, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it shows that link that the Spirit produces joy as we trust in the Lord. And how does the Holy Spirit create joy in our hearts? I would say that further, we could say it's through the Word of God. That is the, we might say, the the near object of our trust. Our trust is in the character of God, but that is through His spoken and written Word to us. And so Romans 15 
verses 4 and 5 talk about this. Verse 4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Everything that was written is to teach us so that through the Scriptures we might have hope, and we could substitute for hope, joy. And then verse 5 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ, so that one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 4 is about the Word of God, and verse 5 is about the Spirit of God producing this in our lives. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in our hearts to, pro- to promote and to pr- produce joy. And so, obviously, if we are going to take this stepping stone and put our security in God alone, we need to be daily and regularly putting our trust in and putting our focus on the Word of God. There is no other way ahead. Jerry... Bridges talks about this in one of his books. He talks about an experience, family time that he had. He says, I well remember a time when our family was struggling through a series of financial reverses. There was one thing after another, injuries, emergency hospital care, things breaking down at home, and frequent car repairs. The final straw was when the car broke down on a trip, and we had to leave it for repairs at an unknown unknown garage for four days. How does that sound? Does that sound like fun? Unknown garage with your car for four days. Assuming the worst, he says, I lost all sense of joy in the Lord because I was focusing on circumstances rather than on Him. But sometime during those four days, the Holy Spirit enabled me to rest on the promise of Romans 8.28, that God was in control and was at work in those circumstances for my good. Romans 8.28 is a passage I had known for years But it did not help until the Holy Spirit applied it to my heart and enabled me to believe it. I think that's a good illustration of this because Bridges is talking about the work of the Spirit in applying God's Word to our lives. So there he is, one of those, when it rains, it pours kind of experiences. And he's saying, that's a verse I've known for years, but the Holy Spirit enlivened it to his heart, and it produced a renewed joy as he knew he could trust the promises of God. You might think of a verse like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So this stepping stone, when we are tempted to have our security shattered because it's based too much in this world, trust in the Lord in your trials. Well, the final stumbling block that we see in this psalm, is losing sight of the Father's love when He disciplines us. Losing sight of the Father's love when He disciplines us. We get to verse 8 in the psalm, and it's almost as if verses 8, 9, and 10 are the Lord's reply to what David has learned. Notice it's spoken from the Lord's point of view. The I here is God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. That's the Lord speaking. Then there's this command not to be like the horse and the mule. And then verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. There's another allusion to surrounding. 
Notice the emphasis, though, on the Lord's unfailing love. It's the Lord's unfailing love that surrounds the man who trusts in him. Now, we know that God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews makes that very clear. And we've moved in this psalm from the idea of guilt and freedom from guilt as we go to God to the Father's deliverance and care for us in trials. And now, in verses 8, 9, and 10, it's this testimony to God's unfailing love, even in trials, even in hardship. And Hebrews twelve eleven says that no discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised by it. The problem that we have is very often Christians lose sight of the Father's love when the Father disciplines us. And He is always disciplining us for our good. We know that Scripture says that the Father disciplines us for past sin, to turn us away from sin. But we also know there are places like Paul's thorn in the flesh where God disciplines Paul to prevent future sin. It's not because of any past sin, it's to prevent future sin. And there are also many places like 1 Peter 1 and James 1 that we know that God brings trials. And Scripture tells us He brings trials and hardship. He disciplines us to test our faith, or we might say to grow our faith. It's His purpose. It's the good work He's got going in our lives. But what happens to us is we lose sight of both the Father's love and the Father's goal for us, His intended purpose for us in this. Lamentations 3.32 says it this way, Though He brings grief, He will show compassion, so great is His unfailing love. There are times God brings grief yet he shows compassion. The idea is there. We, we can always stand and rely on God's unfailing love. So the stump, stumbling block is to lose sight of the Father's love as he disciplines us, and the stepping stone would be the corresponding idea, to keep in view the Lord's unfailing love. And isn't it great the way David comes to that at the end of the psalm? The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him, and there's that calling at the end then to rejoice. It's very easy to lose sight of the Father's love. In fact, we only keep the Father's love before us by faith. It is a fight of faith. Every day it is a fight of faith for the Christian to walk with God, to stand in the gospel, to stand and believe in the Father's love. It is not by the eye of sight. It is by the eye of faith. And no wonder in verse 8 of Psalm 32, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. We need the Lord's instruction. We need the Lord's counsel and guidance. We need His Word to us that we would believe Him and not be like the horse and the mule, stubbornly resisting. What horse or mule ever do you ever speak to and say, here's what I'd like you to do. Let me give you the three points. First, walk to the barn, and then go down by the shed, and, you know, go down to the cornfield there. That's not the way the Lord, we, we know that's not the way He wants to work, to work in our lives. He wants to be counseling us, instructing us, so that we take what He says by faith and stand on it. I think of he, 
Hebrews again. In the example of these saints, Hebrews 10.32, these Christians who had only known the Lord for a few years, maybe 10 or 15 years, and apparently when they had come to Christ, they had suffered persecution for him. And I'm always stunned as I read Hebrews 10.32 and following when the author of Hebrews describes their joy in God. And listen to what he says about what they had gone through. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. And now this phrase, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What a description of a security of a faith fixed on God, their eternal inheritance. They had lasting possessions in their God. So I don't think he's saying that they were clicking their heels and jumping up and down for joy when the authorities or whoever it was took their worldly goods away. But he says that they fundamentally had a joyful response to that. And actually, in the book, he's calling them back to that because that's not where they are now. After these 10 or 15 years, they're not joyfully walking by faith at this time. We have to have that same attitude that Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 talks about when it talks about struggling and throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The same principle is to work in our lives, that, that we set our, our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ and the joy set before us in him. Keep in view the Lord's unfailing love. Habakkuk had it right when he had a difficulty in understanding what the Lord was doing in the nation's life, Judah's life, at a time when God's judgment was being announced and God was going to bring an enemy power to crush Judah and to wipe out Jerusalem. And Habakkuk was wrestling with this. And in chapter 2, verse 3, It says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Habakkuk didn't live to see the fulfillment of all God had said. But it's interesting, the command there, though it linger, wait for it. You don't know what the Father is doing in your life. You don't know all the good things he's doing through the difficulties and the hardships he's bringing in your life. You might see a part of that. None of us knows what tomorrow may bring, whether it may be earthly blessing or earthly sorrow. Habakkuk, later in the book, envisions the desolation that this army will bring, and he says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk envisions utter desolation and yet says, I will rejoice in my God. And that is to be the attitude of joy in the Lord that we are to cultivate as well. 
The one who has trusted Jesus Christ knows that his or her sins are forgiven. We've seen that in the psalm. And we know the certainty of God's unfailing love, even when the mighty waters rise. And so, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Be glad in your God. Father, we ask that you would take and imprint this message on our hearts for this week, for every day of our lives, that we would seek our joy, our highest joy in you. We thank you that our sins are forgiven in Christ. We pray for anyone who might be here who hasn't come to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray that you would help us as Christians who know and love you to know your unfailing love, to stand in it, to rejoice in it, to sink our roots deeply into it and drink from your word and the the certainty and security we have in you. We thank you for this psalm, what it says to us. We pray that you would help us to experience it in our lives this week. Through Jesus Christ.